Hello, thanks for joining in. This is episode 21 of the Feed the Ball podcast, and today I'm speaking to architect and designer Rob Collins. The name Sweetens Cove sends a certain variety of golfer into an almost rhapsodic state of enthusiasm. Sweetens Cove is a nine-hole course in rural Tennessee, about 30 minutes west of Chattanooga, but in the minds of acolytes who journey there, it's a spiritual discovery, a kind of golf nirvana. Rob Collins and his design partner, Tad King, created the course several years ago out of an impoverished, bare-bones course located in a valley floodplain. On that site, Collins and King fabricated a buoyant, scruffy, old-fashioned throwback full of twists and turns, gnarly bunkers, and some of the largest and most pronounced putting surfaces created anywhere at any time. It's an ode to Lynx play, imagination, elasticity, and the ground game. And Sweeten's devotees in the press, online, and on social media have devoured it, forming an almost cult-like appreciation society that's helped to make it one of golf's in-crowd, feel-good stories. By virtually all accounts, Sweeten's Cove is a remarkable, one-of-a-kind place, a beloved beacon of anti-convention that's experienced an improbable rise to number 50 on Golf Week's list of best American courses built since 1960. But for me, there was one problem. I didn't love it. Aside from issues like shaping that felt incongruent with its environment and the use of trees as hazards, the profoundly elevated putting surfaces, several of which sit four or more feet above the grade, exhibiting severe shoulder fall-offs, are extreme and often abusive to the shots played into them. Forget about having long putts with wild swings and contour. That's the fun part. But simply getting your ball onto the green so you can finish the hole can seem impossible with certain pins and course conditions. Collins, who purchased the course from the original owners during the grow-in phase and now owns it, is not just aware of the volubility of the green complexes. He intended them to be that way. He wanted them challenging, multiple, and on the edge. I can only presume those who love Sweetens Cove love it for this reason, the chance to play wild shots that are so different than anything they can get at home. But I found something fundamentally out of balance in the angles, the slopes, and the give and take, a sense I've never experienced in Bandon, Sandhills, Pinehurst, or any other number of great courses. I'll get into this further in an upcoming review, and Rob and I speak about it here, but ultimately the pieces of a golf course fit together and the design works or it doesn't. Sweetens Cove doesn't quite work for me, and I suspect there are others out there who agree but aren't saying so. Even though I believe Sweetens Cove is overproduced and is its own worst enemy, I hope Rob Collins and Tad Keen continue to push in this direction and explore where modern golf design can go. More authentic voices are needed in the design world, and more artistry and conceptual risk is necessary to move architecture from the past into the future. Golf is a much more interesting place, with Kings and Collins' ideas in the ground. Rob was generous to join me and talk about all this and more. Here's one of golf's most authentic and artistic talents, Rob Collins. Let's get right into it. Okay. I had a I had a pretty negative reaction to parts of Sweet and Coves when I played it, which surprised me because of the nearly, you know, unbridled enthusiasm it generates in the press, online, the pictures I've seen of it, in social media. You know, and it does possess so many of the things the golf course does, so many things that I really love and desire in a golf course. But I, I found for me, a few of the greens were contoured and designed on the extreme side to the point where at least for my experience, they were almost unplayable in certain places. Um, mm-hmm. So how, how do you respond when you, when you hear that from somebody who's played your, your golf course? I'm assuming it might 
come up occasionally, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Everybody <laughs> else seems to love it so much. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, you know, when we were building the golf course, um, we certainly knew that we were, were pushing the envelope in a lot of respects, in particular on, on the greens. Um, and, you know, a lot of attention to detail was paid uh, into getting the, the percentages in the pinnable areas to be very, very mellow. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of the transitions are very severe, but, but a lot of the pinnable areas are less than, even less than a percent, you know, typically, like if you look at a, you know, most pinnable areas on, on greens are, or at least on modern greens are are kind of between one and 3%. So to be even less than 1% in some spot, you know, Tad, to his credit, who Tad was my, my partner who finished the greens, um, worked really, really hard to make sure that, that they were going to be uh, playable so that it had that mix of high drama, but also playability. And um, I would say to you that, um, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily surprising to hear that reaction. I mean, I, I think we, we knew going in that, that we were going to get some, some strong reactions from them, but having, you know, had the course open for over three years. I am very, very pleased with the, with the general feedback, um, which is that, you know, most people find them to be challenging, but, but also playable. So I'd have to say that, I mean, your, your opinion, while I respect it, is in the minority. So I'd be curious to know, you know, which, which greens you, you found to, to, to be that way. Yeah, sure. I, and first I'll say, you know, I think it wasn't the actual, maybe the internal contours or the putting, you know, the pinnable areas. It was just it was getting the ball on the green, which, mm-hmm. which I think was surprisingly, uh, there was, they were surprisingly repulsive. In, instead of receptive, they, re, they seemed to repel shots and, and even chip and mm-hmm. pitch and bump and run shots. And specifically, uh, the third green, four and seven and eight were if you if you're off those greens it it might take you a few different <laughs> shots to to get on the green um mm-hmm. and i think you know and i'll i'll i will grant this when i i played in early april and you mm-hmm. know the bermuda grass had still not woken up mm-hmm. uh it was a little bit wet a little bit muddy so the, you know there's not a lot of grass under the ball and the course was in the low spots we're picking up mud and so you know you get to this place where it's very difficult to get the club on the ball but mm-hmm. the fourth green in particular so and i think it depends on what pins you you know if you're going to play it one or go around once you know one day play it maybe two or three times it really depends i'm thinking i'm as the more i you know, reflect on it where the pins are placed that day, because there's there's so many different ways you can set up that golf course. But like on number four, the green is amazing. It's a absolutely delicious piece of art. I mean, it's a sculpture in itself. It should be admired. The pin was kind of in that upper middle tier. And That's a really hard pin. It's yeah. a really hard pin, and I I'm not ashamed to admit I was kind of in the low section off the green. And mm-hmm. 
trying to like he had to hit a bump and run seven iron up the severe slope it's got to be three and a half four feet high to get up there and mm-hmm. then when you get up there finally after i finally you know after roll back to you know down to my feet and in the little drainage basin several times you know take a drop do it again dig you know that the third time you're doing that you know you just juice one and it you know you could go over the green on the <laughs> other you're side over the green right yeah, yeah. and you know and then on seven which again is like a magnificent looking green you can if you miss that green left, you, you can start playing ping pong back and forth going over the from from the left side of that green. Again, there's a drainage basin which kind of makes it it collects everything, and to just to judge it perfectly to get up that slope with a little with a putter or a bump and run depending on the conditions, then it kind of falls away from you and it can easily get over to the other side and then you're doing the same thing. So it's those okay. type of experiences where I'm I'm wondering like at what point does it when a green repel shots like that are you do you get to the point when you know you're starting to like like repel <laughs> the golfers you know or, or their mm-hmm. their goodwill uh, it doesn't seem to be a you know from what from what i hear and what you're telling me it doesn't seem it seems like a, a me problem and not a general problem that you have but well i think those are good you know good observations and i, I would certainly encourage you to to come back and, and play it again and, and i'd love to go play the golf course with you um it's a lot different right now than it was in early April. Um, we've been open for uh, three and a half years now, and this past winter was the absolute worst winter we've ever had. I mean, it was um, extremely wet, extremely cold. Um, every course throughout the Mid-South has been very, very slow coming out of dormancy. We're, we're easily a month behind um, where we were. So, you know, I think if you compare the, our golf course to a lot of other golf courses in the area at that time of the year, um, we would have been in pretty, you know, pretty darn good shape compared to the others, but still it's, it was, you know, the conditions weren't there because of the weather to hit some of the shots that you needed to hit, you know, nowadays, now that the grass has come in and, and we're into a warmer stretch, um, you know, a lot of those shots I think you'd find are a lot easier to play. Um, so I think some of, some of the problems you faced, uh, would be alleviated, um, in regarding the repelling or or penal nature of some of the greens, uh, um, it was my intention and, and Tad's intention to, um, basically have a, have a balance throughout the golf course where, you know, sometimes the contours could be your best friend. Um, and sometimes they could be your worst enemy and, you know, that, that's a dynamic that creates a lot of lasting interest in the golf course, because depending on where you're approaching from and where the pin is, um, you know, it's a, it's a never ending puzzle as to, to, to what type of shot to play. So that was a, you know, a very intentional thing that we wanted to, to introduce, um, to, to the golf course. And in order to do that, uh, you need, you needed some really strong contours to really penalize people if you get in the wrong spot. Um, and, and also, but at the same time to really, really reward people. Um, so, you know, wa- walking through the golf course, um, you know, number one is, is a punch bowl and, a, a pretty large portion of that green is extremely receptive and, and will, you know, can give you a great break. 
Uh, number two has a has a funnel pin on the front that if you hit anywhere near that funnel, um, you're going to you're going to come right down to it. And and conversely, if the pin's up on the left hand side of number two, um, it's extremely penal. Um, just like number seven, number seven, as you mentioned, has a if you go left on that green, you're you're in big trouble. You've got to hit a really really good shot. And um, you know my my feeling on that is that it's a 310 yard par five, or sorry, three. <laughs> we joke that it's the hardest 310 yard par five in America. Uh, <laughs> Can be. It's a, it's a, yeah, exactly. It's a 310 yard par four um, with uh, with a 150 yard wide fairway, and the the challenge and the unique challenge of that hole and of Sweetens Cove in general is that if you presented somebody and said, okay, you've got a, a 310 yard par four with 150 yard wide fairway, they'd say this thing's a piece of cake. Um, but because of the contours, it's not a piece of cake. You've got to get in that 150 yards of width, there's a 20 or 30 yard strip that you really need to be in in order to have your best chance of scoring. So, you know, it's a, it's an approach and in, in recovery shot golf course, and if you don't find yourself in the right position, it can absolutely eat you alive. And um, I think that for me personally and my tastes, I love the dynamic of having total disaster right there next to heroism and, and being able to, you know, pull off birdies and eagles. And, um, you know, I've I personally eagled number seven and I've had a, a six or a seven there um, doing what you described. And I think that that dynamic and that that possibility is what makes it what makes it so intriguing. And, you know, I would contend that, that let's just say hypothetically that number seven, instead of having uh, a steep fall off on the left side and a steep fall off on the right side. If, if it was presented to the golfer as being, um, a hole with a bunker left and a bunker, right. Um, you and I probably wouldn't be having this conversation. The, if there's probably that, that green is probably 5,500 square feet. There's probably, you know, 1,500, 2,000 square feet of pinnable area. Right. So yeah. if, if you if you had a a flattish green with a few little rolls and here and there in a in a in a bunker left and a bunker right, you know, you would just say, "Well, that's you know, that's a pretty standard par four. You've got to hit it in the right spot." But to me, that is a a much less interesting way to to penalize golfers and in, in to create interest um for a, a 15 20 handicap uh, a bunker left bunker right which you see on a lot of golf courses is to, in my opinion far more difficult you know a, a guy who's a 15 or 20 handicap it may be a very difficult shot but he he can hit that ball up that slope i mean he can put the ball on the ground use his putter and, and get it up there and um it's just a different type of golf. And I think we're asking different questions than what a lot of people are accustomed to. So it's not surprising um, that, that sometimes it would 
come off as is off putting or, or or too much because I mean it, it, we are we were pushing the envelope. There's no question. Um, but well, I know, think that's I, what I think that's I what think that's what makes it interesting. Well, and that's what's so perplexing to me is because I mean the name of this podcast is Feed the Ball. I mean this is the kind of architecture that I I crave and I don't see enough of. And I talk about on this show about how we need to develop new new looks and be creative and you know the dumbing down of greens and green complexes uh, throughout mm-hmm. the last thirty years. But I, I, so it's, that's what, that's what I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around is like, what, why did I walk off the golf course? Like so angry at certain things. <laughs> and I, I know part of it is like, you know, the conditions weren't, weren't, were working against the shots that needed to be played. Mm-hmm. I did see some, you know, I played on a day with some really tough pins, like on eight, it was up on that back plateau. I mean, on the left. I mean, that, that's, that is one of the hardest 30 or 40 yard shots you'll ever face anywhere. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it. it's almost impossible. No, you can't, it's really, really hard. Yeah. And even like chipping the ball back up to that small area, you know, if it, you know, if you're not really precise with your chips, you know, you're going to be doing it for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So but I just, you know, I, I thought that the, I, I love the concepts and I love the ground game. And, and I, I was just thinking like, well, like you mentioned on seven, it's a 310 yard night, short part forward, big fairway. But you do have to hit it in a certain spot. I, I dropped a second tee ball and, and hit it way over to the left just to see if that was mm-hmm. like, I mean, I'm like, look, there's fairway over there. It must be. But like, you're not going to lose your ball, but that's you're, that's terrible place to try to that's hit that. That's an awful place yeah. so, to, to try so to the, come in. So yeah. it's wide, but it's, you know, the whole course plays wide. There's a lot of width, but it really doesn't play wide. It is wide, but it doesn't play wide. You know, you really have to be in certain if, sections if of you, it. That, and that's that's part of the riddle. I mean, if you w- really want to score, you have to find the, the, the small windows out there. And that that's how you that that's how you score. So here's seven another example. And look, I don't I don't critique golf courses based on how I played them. So this is this feels weird to me to even be talking about like the shots <laughs> that I that I hit, but I'm still trying to piece this together. On, so on on seven, you know, it was, it was a, a bit of a wind. So I kind of manufactured this really what I thought was an incredible like kind of punchy eight iron that stayed under the wind. It landed was about it, was it was it into you? Yeah, it was kind of it was yeah. a little into me, kind of from the left. Uh-huh. And I and I just hit it pure, and it landed right where I thought it should. And it was about maybe 10, 12 feet left of the pin. I'm like I'm like that was a good one, Derek start to put my club back in the bag, pick up my bag. I look up and now it's rolling back, rolling back, rolling back off the green down to the left. And, you know, that was the second time around. And then the first time I played it, I was, you know, right in front of that, the uh, bunker on the left, you know, so I, mm-hmm. I try to run one up the slope and it, you know, and it comes back down and I do that a couple of times. So like, I was just like, what does it take, you know, to get a ball on these, these goddamn greens? You know? <laughs> and I had the same experience elsewhere, you know, where I, where I, uh, you know, would you know you'd hit it, hit a shot, and then you just watch it roll, 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 roll off the green. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, so let's let's take this in a in a, uh, a another just kind of generally architectural level. Is there a line with severity of green contour and green surrounds? And have you ever seen a golf course that you think has pushed hasn't actually pushed it too far? And what where would that line be? Well, I definitely think there are. Um, I I won't mention specific courses just because I don't want to, you know, offend anybody or whatever, but come come on, um, I'm sitting here (laughs) criticizing your course right to your face. (laughs) No, 
you know, there's a couple that come to mind that I, I have um, pretty intimate knowledge with. I just, but the, the main problem comes with, you know, let's just speak about modern, modern golf courses. Okay. Um, so a lot of times you'll see severe golf, severe greens, but the problem with them is, is they don't leave enough flattish pinnable area, um, where, where you can have a reasonable putt. Um, too many times you'll see, um, it's just, at a, at, a high, at a high green speed, if you're if you've got a, a pinnable area, it you know let's call it around two and a half three percent, and you've got this massive transition. And if you've got really fast green speeds, the ball just simply is not is not going to stop, and is it, you know good shots are, are not going to be rewarded. And in and in, in, in the course I'm thinking of, um, they've had to come back. It's by a very, very famous architect. They had to come back multiple times and redo it because they were just simply too severe. And I think that the really brilliant thing about Sweetens Cove and, you know, big credit to Tad for this is, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier is we have very severe greens, but at the same time, I, I believe, and, you know, this is a, a belief that's been developed over watching people play, playing a lot of rounds out there, um, watching people of all different skill levels. You know, I, I do contend that those greens are, at Sweetens are very, very playable. And um, so, yeah, there is there is definitely a line. Um, and it, um, it, you know, it, it can be crossed. But I think the key is in not wearing people out too terribly much in in in, in the pinnable areas um you know it's it's nice to be able to make a, a a 15 or 20 foot putt you know have it have a chance to do that and i think that there's a at sweetens cove you get you get a lot of that and um by doing that you can really amp up a lot of the other features to to create interest right i, I think what it, what i come down to is this now that i've thought about it is it was it seemed to me n- numerous times throughout the round that there was very little separation between a good shot and a poor shot. Like take number four, for instance, I, I hit a shanky toey uh, shot that ended up in that little low area that I told you about. And then mm-hmm. I put another ball. It was a slow day. I put another ball down and hit what I thought was a really well struck shot that kind of landed almost, you know, right on the edge of that, where it starts to fall off and mm-hmm. didn't quite, you know, I needed maybe one more yard and it rolls back to the exact same spot that my bad shot, hit Mm -hmm. so is Mm -hmm. is there some is there some kind of formulation where we can think about how you can distinguish between good shots and poor shots if they're ending up kind of in the same place well i would say that that for for your example i mean that's a pretty small sample size um you know a lot of the times it's sweet and scope. I mean, one of the things that we really wanted to implement out there was that was the concept of rub of the green and, and luck. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes you're going to get a bad break and that's just part of golf and you've got to suck it up and deal with it. Um, you know, sometimes not a great shot. will 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 because of the contours and the way the golf course was built can be rewarded and, and turned into a great shot. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example one time, a couple of years ago, I was standing out on the fifth green doing something. I think I was working out there and, um, 
this guy, he was probably in his seventies, uh, was, was playing number five. And, um, the, the one with the boomerang green around the, the really deep bunker in the middle. And he was hitting a, probably a five wood or a seven wood from about 60 yards out. I mean, the guy was a terrible golfer. He could barely get it airborne. So. And so he tops this ball and it starts running. He hits this and it just runs and it catches this contour hooks around the bunker and lays dead at the hole, like a, a foot away. And I'm like screaming. I'm like, Oh my God, it's an incredible shot. You know? And the guy just, he didn't even realize, you know, how lucky of a break he had gotten. And, mm -hmm. um, so that was a thrill for me to see that, that, you know, sometimes, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the contours can be your best friend. I mean, if that guy had hit that shot on any other golf course, I mean, he never would have gotten that, that thrill, um, of, of the ball kind of hooking around the bunker. And, th and that's the way the contours were fashioned. They were fashioned to be able to play away from the hazard and, and use those contours, um, to, to lay it dead at the hole. And, and a lot of times that's, you know, that's what you, what you get out there. Um, I, I think that, um, I, I think that you need to see the golf course again, and you need to get a, a larger sample size of, of shots because the type of things that it, it seems like you like and the type of shots that you can hit really are on, on full display at Sweeten's Cove. I, I just think you, you maybe caught it on a day when it just wasn't happening and maybe you got a few bad breaks when you thought you should get good breaks. Um, but I, I think that, um, I've seen enough golf at Sweetens Cove and enough really, really good players out there to know that, that, um, the golf course will reward good shots. Um, and it, you know, will occasionally penalize what seems like a good shot. I mean, I think that there's in my philosophy and in, in architecture, I think that there's a difference between, a, a good shot and a good result. Uh, meaning just because you strike a ball well, doesn't necessarily mean that you've hit a good shot. You know what I'm saying? You know, you can, you can still, you can still find yourself in a bad spot with that. I mean, that, that's just part of golf, but that doesn't need, that doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to happen every time. It just happens sometimes. Um, and, you know, I think that perhaps if that, that ball you hit on number four, if it had carried another yard or two, you know, which might have happened if you'd hit the exact same shot again, um, you know, might have been 10 feet from the hole. So that's just kind of, that's just, that's just part of golf as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. You know, and I, look, I've, I've played a lot of golf and been around and seen, seen a lot of golf courses. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm sympathetic to what you, to what you're saying. So that's why I'm asking you these questions. And I, I know you've seen, you know, I think that, that I was thinking as I'm going around that Sweetens Cove is, is that for a, for nine holes, I couldn't, I mean, this is like the one place that you need more local knowledge and more repeat rounds on here to fully grasp everything that's being presented to you more than probably any 18 hole course that I've played. I mean, cause there's so many different pin placements. There's so many different ways to play shots. You have to, I think you really have to play it over and over and over again to fully like grasp what a good shot is and what a good shot isn't, you know, and I agree with you, like going around two times and just seeing the pins that, that are cut that day, isn't going to do that course justice. There's, there's so much complexity and, and richness 
and you know so i'm i'm sympathetic absolutely to to what you're to what you're doing there but i was curious to you know to get you to hear you comment on that and for you to hear my comments but well i I go ahead well i do want to just interject one quick thing i i think that um i i'm strangely actually consider your comments a, a a tremendous compliment to us. Um, you know, Sweetens Cove was built to be a golf course that revealed itself very slowly over time, only upon repeat play. Um, I, I want Sweetens Cove to be a course that you could play 10,000 times and on your 10,000th round, you still learn something new. Um, that was the goal. And my favorite golf course in the world is the old course. That That's a course that does mm-hmm. that better than any course in the world. It's a course that, for a lot of people, is is famously off-putting upon first view. I mean, Bobby Jones hated it when he, he first did. saw it. Yeah. And, um, and then he came to love it, and Augusta National was largely modeled after it in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, I, I thought when we built Sweetens Cove, that there would be more reactions like yours than there have been. And I wasn't afraid of that or, or concerned by that because I knew that the fundamentals of what, what was built out there over time upon repeat play would reveal itself as a great strategic golf course that was is full of shot making interest is, is almost any golf course in the world. And, um, that, that's something that I, I stand by. And I think that the fact that you didn't have a great day out there on your first day is in a way evidence of that. I mean, I, I, I would, I would love for you to come back out and try some of those shots again and see what happens next time. You know, you, you might you might find that you have a completely different experience, or maybe you don't. But um, no, the, and then the conversation that I'm that we're having, and I'm glad we're having, and what I wanted to have is is like where is where is that line? I'm fully capable of handling bad results and and bad bounces and bad scores that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't it wasn't unique. I didn't go there to Sweden's Cove expecting to you know to, sh- to shoot seventy four, but but I was seeing things that happened on the green and balls rolling off the green and such to, to a degree that I have was unaccustomed to. Mm-hmm. And I'll use that kind of frame to, to ask you, you know, you mentioned, you know, you thought you'd have more reactions like mine when it opened, but you haven't. The, the enthusiasm for Sweden's Cove has been, you know, it's like an uncharted territory. You know, you've developed this, you've cultivated this fandom of your golf course. So congratulations on that. What do you what do you attribute that to? That people are so embraceive, em, they embrace so much that style of golf and what they get at Sweetens Cove. All these these things that we've been talking about with balls rolling around and the high contoured greens and the different shots. What do you attribute the popularity of the golf course to? Uh, I think, in a way, you kind of answered the question, but in the question, um, part of it, I think, is the the fact that most golf courses that we see in America don't have really any of the characteristics that Sweden's Cove has. So it's, it's a very fret. It's refreshing in a lot of ways to, to, to see these things. And, um, you know, I think that, um, 
you know, one one thing I have noticed at Sweetens Cove is, let's say you're a 10 handicap, okay, and you go out, a lot of times, or most of the time, people will come around and that 10 handicap will shoot somewhere between 78 and 84. You know, he's kind of, he's in his typical range. He might have a good day and shoot in the high 70s, or he might be somewhere in the mid 80s. And that's not, that's not a different result score-wise for him than if he went and played some god-awful, you know, mid-80s golf course in Atlanta that has absolutely no architectural interest at all. But but d- during his round, um, he will have encountered and experienced things that perhaps he's never never seen before. For. And and I think that that is uh, something that, that that people have really really loved. So, you know, on number seven, for instance, you know, he may pick up a double or triple bogey because he's <laughs> kicking it back and forth. Um, but if he's playing, you know, random mid eighties, not good golf, you know, that double or triple bogey would have been picked up by hitting the hitting the ball in the water or right. messing around in a, you know, in a, in a bunker or something. My point being is, is that Sweetens Cove takes its lumps out of you in different ways and ways that other people have experienced before. At the same time, I think Sweetens Cove can reward you in ways that you necessarily haven't seen before. You know, one time I was playing the the golf course. Um, it was really firm and fast. Uh, I was playing with Graylin Loomis, a editor at Lynx Magazine, really good player. And he, he was uh, out in front of number one green on the left-hand side, and the pin was far right. And he, he putted his ball so far left of the flag. I mean, he putted it 100 feet left of the flag. And the ball rolls way up on this slope and comes down and rolls hard right and he knocked it within six inches of the hole. And that was the most thrilling shot I've, I've ever personally witnessed at Sweden's Cove when, when Grayland did that. Yeah. And um, I just thought that was, was incredible. And that that's the type of shot that you can pull off and the, the type of reward that you can get if you find that line of charm, that, that, that magical route. Um, because they're out there. There's a, <laughs> they're all over the place out there, um, but if you miss it, you know, you might you might find yourself in trouble. Um, and but but if over the course of you know ten ten rounds or whatever, uh, you know, a five or ten or fifteen handicap or a scratch golfer, they're going to be somewhere around where they where they normally are, but they will have experienced more ups and downs and you know s- strange occurrences and. <laughs> being rewarded, being repelled uh, in ways that they're not accustomed to. And I think that all that mixed together is one reason, or, you know, a lot of the reason why it's resonated with people in the yeah. way that it has. Because, but I, I, I do think there is a line. I mean, I haven't really addressed that. I mean, there, there is absolutely a line that, that where it goes to be too much. And, um, you know, I had some sleepless nights when we were doing Sweetens Cove, like, did we push it too far? I mean, where, where is that line? I mean, I don't necessarily know, you know, you don't necessarily know. It's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a matter of one's own perception of, of 
where that line is. And so, you know, we tried really hard to push the envelope, but not go, not go over. And, um, you know, I was talking to a guy, he's a really, really well-traveled guy. He's on golf club Atlas. And, um, he was out there this past weekend and he was just going absolutely crazy for the golf course. And and we had this conversation. He talked about some of the modern <laughs> designs and in particular, there's one architect who's done some stuff who he's really pushed the envelope, but it's probably gone too far because it's just not, it loses its playability. It loses the, the fun factor. It's just, it's just too much. And, um, you know, we worked, like I said, worked really hard to kind of keep, keep Sweeten's Cove tethered to the ground. And, and so it wouldn't float away and, and go into the, go into this place where it was, where it was too much and was over the line. And, um, you know, I think that if you play enough rounds out there that, that you'll find that, that, that the line, whatever, wherever that line is and whatever, that, whatever that line is, that, that it was, was not crossed, but, well, by, you know. and by the way, Rob, let's not let's not overlook this. There, the Sweetens Cove is a remarkable place. I mean, it's an enchanting place. It's it's tucked away in the in this valley. It's it has a real amazing feeling. And despite all we've been talking about so far, I just want to. I mean, I, we have to mention that it it's a wonderful place. There are some great holes. I think the first screen we've talked about it a little bit is is magnificent. I think the second hole is is one of my favorite holes on the golf course. It's just a great, great kind of short to mid-length par four. Five you talked about is fascinating. There are a thousand different ways to play it. I like the ninth green. So there, I, I wanted. I just want to let you know and that I do like the golf course. I like you know there's some of the, the things out there are, are outstanding. And Sweetens Cove represents what everybody, or not everybody, but at least everybody who thinks like I do, you know, should want from golf. You know, it's public, it's organic, it's locally owned, it has variety, it has options, it has interest. Uh, it was built affordably. So these are the lessons that, that, that I take from it, you know, mm -hmm. a, a few, you know, playability issues aside, and I hope to get back and, and, you know, see it in a different, a different context, but Sweetness Cove is a, is a great place. So you deserve a lot of, a lot of credit for that. If it if that go same golf course was located kind of in Chattanooga or just in a suburb or like or closer to a denser metropolitan area, do you think do you think it would be perceived differently? Because right now it's sort of like um, a journey that people take. You know, you have to like you have to go see Sweetens Cove. Mm. So there's this 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 uh, effort to get there, and you you can't wait. And you hear things. There's almost like a mythology built around it. But if it were located, you know, in a more of an urban area, you'd get a lot more traffic. Do you think that that plays into how it, the course has been perceived? That's an interesting point that I actually haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about. I, I've Patrick, the, the GM and I've spent a lot of time, uh, bitching and moaning about the, the small amount of play that we get. Um, we, for all its popularity, I mean, we're, we're getting more and more, uh, busy. We were up 48% last year over the year before, but, you know, we always look at it more in the context of if this golf course was in Chattanooga, you know, it would be packed from dawn till dusk every day. I mean, it would be a much more, uh, <laughs> it'd be a lot easier to, to, to make it work financially. 
but from the from the standpoint that, that you're asking, I mean, I I think that the remote location maybe does play a little bit into it. I mean, it it is a you've got to travel a little bit, and it's it's certainly off the beaten path. I think that um, the fact that you're driving down this this country road and all of a sudden this golf course that you certainly wouldn't expect to be there is sitting there is is part of the charm um and that that valley and the 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 beauty of it or you can't it's not something you can replace mm-hmm. um so I, I do think that i think that you bring up a really good point i think that that probably is part of it the creation story of sweet and coves has been uh covered in, in various places you know the new york times even uh, wrote a nice story on it last year one thing that one misconception that i had was you know, you, at some point you you purchase it from the original owners, the concrete company who were renovating the nine hole course that they owned. I thought, in for some reason, not that it's ever been written, but I just thought this that once you acquired the course, that's when you could really kind of let out the rope and and do some uh, some of the shaping and experimental things that that are out there now. But you bought it after all this was built, so the original owners were actually they were on board with the concept of of Sweetens Cove as it is now, was that a, what were your discussions like with them when you were saying, okay, I want to do this. I want to build these, this, these types of greens. I want to have this kind of width. What was, was that a hard sell? No. Um, and, and Tad and I, uh, hit an absolute home run in that regard. Um, our, our primary client, um, one, it was one of the, one of the primary owners of, of, of the, the concrete company, his name's Reese Thomas, and uh, I'll forever be indebted to Reese and Tad will as well for his his trust in us. Um, you know, if you took let's let's say Tom Doak, I mean, you know, the one of the most famous and well respected names in, in architecture, and, and Tom had a vision to do a golf course like Sweetens Cove. I mean, he could potentially have a lot of trouble convincing an owner to do a lot of the things that we did out there, even with his track record. And so to come out of the gate is, you know, first time solo project and be able to do the things that we did um, and have that, that trust factor was very rare. And, and I was aware of that. Um, and it, <laughs> there was a lot of field work and a lot of, lot of long, hard days making sure that you know, these things worked functionally. It wasn't just form, it was form and function. And, um, you know, we, we got lucky that, that they were, you know, bought into the vision. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of the severity of, of Sweeten's Cove is, is offset by, you know, the, the extreme width and, um, you know, gen- general playability you find elsewhere on the golf course. Um, and as an example, I'm sitting here looking at a, a picture of my dad hitting a tee shot on on number four, and I'm reminded that there's about you know 60 yards of fairway out, out to the right of that. So while you've got this you know wild tumbling green, you know a a, a 20 or 25 handicap isn't going to lose his ball in a pond there. Um, he may be 20 yards right of the, the green, but he's, 
at least he's on fairway cut and he can hit a putter or whatever he wants and, and, and try to play. So I think that, you know, the overall concept of the golf course helped, um, offset some of the, the severity of the, of the key features and that they, they bought in and they let us do our thing. And that was, that was lucky. Yeah. You mentioned it was your first solo project, you and Tad together. Did you, at some point in your mind, were you thinking that, well, you know, this is my shot, you know, I'm, I have a lot of creative control. We have great owners who are supportive. This is my shot. Let's, let's, let's see what we can do with this. It's almost sort of like an, an audition or a, a way to like put forth, put your stamp on this course. So like other people would notice it and it would lead to other jobs. Oh, there's no question. I mean, that was absolutely, I mean, that was in the forefront of my, my mind every day. I mean, I, I knew that if we didn't pull this one off, that there would be no number two, you know, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and, you know, this is kind of funny. I've never, I've never said this, uh, publicly, but they were building, the uh, Suwannee golf course uh, just up the road at the exact same time. I mean, it was a really strange happenstance that two, two of the only golf courses in the entire country that were being built in 2012 were rural nine hole courses separated by 25 minutes. Right. Um, and, and Suwannee was done by Gil Hans who, you know, at the time had just been hired to do the Olympic course had a, had a huge name, and um, you know, from from my end, I felt a lot of competition with him. <clears throat> I um, I, I knew that that Sweet Sweetens Cove, because of the proximity, because of them both being nine holes, they were going to be compared to one another, and, and you know, this was our chance to show that we can do it as well as anybody, and so you know, Gil Hans did not need to compete with me. I mean, he had already proven himself, right? Right. Um, he was going to go do the Olympic course, whether he built a better golf course in Sweetens Cove did not matter one iota to him. Um, not, I'm not saying he didn't, I'm obviously he cares tremendously about the quality of his work, but he didn't, he wasn't concerned what was going on in South Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. (laughs) I, on the other hand, uh, very much wanted to make sure that, Sweetens Cove was as, as good as it possibly could be, and I wanted it to to prove to the golfing world that we could uh, design and build golf courses as good as as anyone in the world. And um, I'm I'm comfortable saying that I think Sweetens Cove proves proves that. And um, well, you're not you know, you're not so the only it, one. It's number fifty on Golf Week's modern best courses list. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, to take a, to take a 72 acre, uh, site in a floodplain with heavy clay soils, um, with nine holes and, and get that, that kind of a claim is, I mean, it's a dream come true. And, and we, I knew, I mean, Hey, if we didn't hit a home run here, the phone was not going to ring again. No, nobody was going to call us. If we screwed this one up, we weren't going to get a number two. I was going to have to live out the rest of my life selling insurance or something, um, which I sure as hell didn't want to do. So, uh, so God forbid. There was yeah. a lot. There was a lot. It was a lot of a lot of pressure. Were you able to? Did you have to stay with the routing of the previous course? 
uh, primarily the routing is the same. Um, the first, second, and third holes all occupy the same ground. Um, we, we changed green locations a little bit, but generally the corridors are basically the same. Four moved a little bit. The T's on five move, but the general corridor is the same. Corridor is the same on six, seven, and eight. And then nine is a, is a completely new hole. But mm-hmm. generally speaking, um, you know, time-lapse photos on, on Google Earth, uh, if, if you look at the, you know, the progress of construction uh, there, you can see that we pretty much stuck with a, a similar routing. I told our, I told Reese when we started, I was like, look, this, you know, this place has got you know, a couple important things going for it. I mean, number one, the routing is solid. Number two, that this valley, this incredible, <laughs> incredibly beautiful setting is something you, you can't replicate. It's just this magical place. And, um, and, there were a lot of uh, serious challenges with the with the course. The you know the flooding issues, the <clears throat> no drainage, no elevation change, heavy clay soils. But, but we did have a couple things that were in our favor that uh, that were important that helped us a lot. Right. I know that f- you know for you, we've been talking on this show a lot about the design build concept and and how the that's becoming more and more popular in, in golf course industry and the feedback and the results that design build teams are getting are significant. And that's, that's how you approach it as, as well. That's important to you, right? To, that, to be able to offer a client the ability to produce a high quality golf course at a low cost. Can you talk about how important that is and, and what are some of the, some of the, the things that happen in the business that clients future clients can get confused about that they might need to be educated about? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, I think the design build business is the future of golf uh, construction. You know, during the, during the boom time in the eighties and nineties, for example, you know, you had the architect on one side, the contractor on the other, and it was almost like an assembly line. And they, you know, they were just churning out one golf course after another. And um, Tad and I, prior to King Collins had, had both worked in that model and because that was what was, that's how we could get work, um, as we were trying to, to learn our craft. And, um, he and I both saw a lot of shortcoming in that model in that, um, you know, there's less attention to detail. Uh, the, the client, uh, ends up getting charged a lot more, um, for, for the construction of the golf course, you know, a, a piece of pipe that the client could normally buy directly, if you buy it through a contractor, is going to be marked up. I and mean, that's just one example of how costs uh, can inflate and, and the artistry um, can, can be hurt. Um, if you have the design-build method, and Tad and I looked and thought, you know, if you look at the best golf courses that have been built over the last 30 years, they've all been built with the, with the design-build methodology and so you know the reason that is i think is that there's a lot of efficiencies built into that method when you're out building a golf course um you know if you're doing design build you're not going to have a bunch of change orders and you know all this kind of stuff you know another thing uh 
with the design build is that you can control the process. You know, a lot of times in, in signature signature projects, you get a lot of consultants and a lot of people involved who don't necessarily have the client's best interests or pocketbook in mind, and they're they're essentially out to to try to try to make a buck, and they're they're promoting their agenda, which which may not be aligned with uh, you know the overall vision uh, of trying to build a great golf course. Um, a, a perfect example of a project that Tad worked on. Um, you know, they had this consultant involved and he convinced the client that it was necessary to put herringbone drainage, like, you know, you would, might put, uh, under, underneath a bunker, or a green that they needed to be next to the sprinkler heads in order to pick up the little splash of water that, that comes off of a sprinkler head. And, you know, that was done at a tremendous cost to, to the client. I mean, it's a complete waste of time. The, the golf course was in, in a very arid climate. I mean, if it, no matter where it was built, that's a waste of time. You know, uh, consultants convince clients to ship sand across oceans or across, across countries to, you know, to build a golf course. And, uh, you know, using a design-build method, you can cut out a lot of that, um, that mindset and, and can save tremendous amounts of money, uh, for the client while at the same time maintaining artistic control, uh, of, of the, of the project. And, and the end result is that, uh, you know, you can build a golf course for way less than, than the old, uh, architect versus contractor model, but you have your finger on the, the pulse of the project every day. And, and, and can deliver it to, to a very high artistic and detailed standard that otherwise wouldn't be possible if you've got the contractor and the architect fighting every day. It's just, it's just, it's the way to do it. Who are these consultants? Are they uh, in the manufacturing or distribution industry or are, the, are these people who work for the architect? Who are, who are these culprits? Um, you know, a lot of times it's... Uh, it can be a irrigation consultant, uh, agronomic consultants, uh, salespeople. Um, you know, it, it could fall under you know any a lot of different uh, fronts. You know, it's just people have their own agenda when it comes to um, a golf course construction project, and if you get too many cooks in the kitchen um you know the people start seeing dollar signs and they they see uh, a big construction project as a way to to promote their their little niche and and they think that you know hey i can make you know x number of dollars if i convince the client that this is you know doing you know shipping this sand across the across the mediterranean sea is is necessary when when you know there's a perfectly suitable local local source of sand and um it's it's just it can be a it can be a dirty business and and you've got to you got to cut out the cut out the fat and do yeah, things I mean, I guess sens- these guys, do, do, do things do things sensibly yeah, and do I mean, things with, with the client's best interest in mind um, that's one of the things that tad and i are so passionate about 
I mean, I think that golf has found itself in a very difficult place right now because things got so far out of control. And, um, you know, if a client, for example, uh, you know, built a golf course for, let's call it $35 million that could have been built for sensibly for seven to 10 million, um, you know, he's never going to see a return on that money that he spent ever. It's just, it's, it's too much. And therefore he is going to be very unlikely to ever build golf again. And, and so, you know, the golf industry has really shot itself in the foot with the excesses of that we witnessed in, in the boom time. I mean, people are less likely to build golf because, you know, a lot of times it's just not built sensibly costs are, uh, driven up. People have their own agendas and, and it, uh, and it, and it hurts the game in, in the long term. Yeah. There's no doubt that there was a lot of bad practice happening in the eighties and nineties and early two thousands and, you know, set the stage for not only bad golf, but bad financials and bad expectations and bad outcomes. But then, you know, the recession in 2008 came along and shut down the industry mm-hmm. more or less for a few years. Mm-hmm. And now we're, we've, you know, we've, we're noticing some projects come and even new bills are on the horizon. You know, the obviously renovation restoration is where most of the business is. So we've come out of that. That was an opportunity to kind of cleanse the industry and, and hit reset. But do you sense now that you're out uh, competing for jobs do you have any sense that, that the industry or certain aspects of the industry were starting to creep back into that pre-recession mentality? Or, you know, or, or have we really truly redirected ourselves in a, in a healthier direction? I think that the vestiges of that era will likely always remain in, in some form or another. I mean, it's, it's, it's never going to be fully cleansed, but there the door it has definitely swung open for more sensible types of of design and construction and i think that the you know the herd has been called out a little bit and um the the people who can <clears throat> deliver elite golf at a a lower price point um are going to be the ones who thrive over the next you know, 20 or 30 years, because ultimately the, the recession and the excesses of the, the era before that um, are going to place a, a higher premium on, on being able to, 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 do, to do things um, in an efficient way, but, but without losing quality. So if you can do that, then, then you, you're sort of in the, the catbird seat going forward. And I think that there's a handful of of people, us included, and, and a handful of uh, practitioners who were doing it during the the boom time, uh, that they're in in the best position going forward. I, I, I really like where we where we stand right now. I mean, I, we're we're looking at a project. I'm sitting here, um, standing over a drafting table, looking at a new project um, that had previously been looked at by one of the more famous architects ever. And, um, you know, the, the amount of money that it would have cost for this golf course to have been built in the boom time, um, 
if in fact we get this project, we'll do it for, I'd say about half of, of what it would have cost. And that includes design fee. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's trimming out a lot of the unnecessary fluff that was surrounding, you know, the, the way golf courses were built back then. That has and, and to get the, the client's attention. That oh, when absolutely. You, when you have this proposal that's for a fraction of the cost is the uh, oh, one sitting right next to it. a fraction of the cost, yeah. And it's, it's going to be a much more interesting uh, uh, and compelling golf course. It's going to be one that's built by, you know, five or six um, people who take their craft extremely seriously and uh, want to implement micro details across a you know 250 acre site um it's it's not going to be just another you know contractor build that is just like the one they did before and the just like the one they did after yeah Um, without knowing who the client is is has it been is it difficult at all to swing their attention away from the bright spotlight that might be associated with this other name and on to you, to you who has definitely notoriety, but it's, it's more of in a, a niche, you know, style of design that, you know, the average person reading a golf magazine might not know you. Is it hard to swing their attention toward a company like yours? Um, Yes and no. I mean, I, th- I think our phone is definitely starting, has been ringing for some time. We've got a lot of a lot of really good leads. We're starting a new project uh, this summer. And, you know, I think that, that people are starting to take notice. And I think that, you know, for us, the key is just getting in front of people. If, if we can just get in front of a client and, and explain to them our methodology and explain to them how we can save them money, over you know the the traditional architect versus contractor model, um, and and you know show them our concepts, you know show them some of the things we've done before. It it becomes a pretty easy job from our standpoint of a you know showing them and convincing them that 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 this is the way to go. Um, but you know it's we're definitely still in a in a growth phase trying to get our name out there for sure. The project you're starting this summer is that something you can talk about? Yeah, it's um, it's a really neat uh, project. Actually, another another nine holer. Um, it's about an hour and a half north of uh, of New York City. The client actually hasn't given us uh, a, a green light to discuss the the location yet. Um, they're they're going to have a, a kind of a big PR rollout here uh, in the next next little while but um it's going to be a really really cool project there's an 18 hole course that's being cut down to nine um and they're going to build a really cool uh hotel cabins hiking trails uh biking road biking and and golf is going to be one of the one of the you know things that people can do there and um and they you know they saw our work at at sweetens cove and um, again it was another instance where you know we needed to put a budget together and 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 it's a it's a design build project and they you know had enough money to um to do the work but they didn't have so much could have been done under uh you know the 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 previous model that was was used uh you know in, in the boom time and 
um, we were able to put together a budget that was significantly lower than than what you'd get if you did an architect contractor model, and and that because we could do that, we were able to to secure the project. Otherwise, it they would have I don't know what they would have done, but it it wouldn't have been a golf project. How will I mean? Are there things that you you've done at Sweetness Cove that you can apply here? Is it going to be the same style of golf course? I'm imagining it will. Will it look the same or play the same, or do you have to tamp it down a little bit since you're building it for somebody else now? Well, it's funny. They actually approached us and and made it very clear from the get go that they want the Sweetens Cove Wow Factor. So, nice. yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. Well. So we're, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna bring it, um, and it, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm I'm really really excited about it and can't wait to get going. Yeah. Well, good. I I saw some sketches on Instagram that you posted of oh, yeah. concepts of of another golf course. Is is this that that or is this another one that's uh, in the planning or proposition phase? Yeah, actually, I've I've posted two different um, sketches on Instagram. One of them was for the the nine hole course I mentioned, and then the I did a recent post on Instagram that was a field sketch of a this other this other project um the 18 holer that i that i mentioned um where i'm, ju- I'm just now kind of starting a a drawing for that um so it's uh it's exciting to have have real leads and real clients talking to us and just want to keep it rolling well what is it what is it like to go through that procedure i meant i asked you a minute ago like if it's hard when you know they're looking at a, a big uh design contract uh, proposition or proposal and then they have yours do, do you feel like and you kind of mentioned it before about about the there's a little bit of a dishonesty in in the business isn't there and is that hard mm-hmm. to, hard is that hard for you to to compete against that or how does that make you feel when now that you're out well, there especially answering phone calls and getting the opportunity well i mean as much <clears throat> disdain as tad and i have for you know the the people and the the methodology that have driven costs up and 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 essentially hurt the game of golf and hurt the the growth of the game of golf. They are pretty easy to compete against because you can. It's so easy to beat them. I mean, when you take a proposition to a, a client and say, you know, we can build this golf course for, you know one half or one third of, of what, you know, what you were told before by X, Y, and Z uh, guy. Um, that's a pretty compelling argument. I mean, we, we looked at a, there was a great project that we were hired to put a concept together for. It never came off. It's on our website. It's called the Montaigne club up in, up in Canada. And, um, that had been looked at, uh, by several big name firms, uh, one of whom told our client that it would have cost a million dollars a hole to build it. And the budget, which by the time the contractor got done killing the client, I mean, it would have been a $25 million job. Our budget on it was, I think, $5 million. Um, so it's just, you know, that, that's a, that's a very compelling argument in a, you know, a great position to be in to be able to to deliver something that's uh, special and unique for a, a fraction of the price. 
but then again, your the competition will often if if they're you know a sizable, well-established firm, won't, won't they come in and tell the the prospective client that it's a risk to go with a design-build firm like yours? There's liability. Uh, it's it's more of a dangerous proposition to hire you than it is to hire them. They will. I'm certain that that, that argument would be made, but our our counter argument to that is, is, is exactly that, that we are the ones that aren't risky. Um, we're, it's far more risky to, to, to go down the road with a, with an architect who's only going to make three or four site visits and, you know, have a huge budget that's not going to be compelling. I mean, the world does not need more uninteresting golf courses. Um, (laughs) so, that that is um, that's a far riskier proposition for a client um, than than what we're what we're selling, which is highly artistic, interesting, compelling, fun, strategic golf uh, at a at a smaller price that's going to be easier to maintain. I mean, um, in time, our our names will be built up, and there won't be. Is, is much risk associated with it, um, just purely from a name standpoint. But that is, you know, that that kind of is our selling point. I mean, you know, I mean, going back to the Sewanee Sweetens Cove thing. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, no <laughs> no disrespect to to Gil Hans and, and his team, but they had a they had a way better site than we did, and they had a lot more money, and you know. <laughs> Right, Score, scoreboard. Yeah, exactly, exactly. the The crowd has spoken. Yeah, you. you I always find it interesting that you worked. Uh, your first job was with Rick Robbins, and then you were hired mm-hmm. at Gary Player Design, a, a big international design firm. Where there's, you know, there are associates, and there's a hierarchy and different levels of of administration and all that entails in being in a firm of that size. What it seems like the exact opposite of the way you would always want to design golf courses in the way you design golf courses now was that how did you cope with that being in such a structured environment with so many layers of the the inefficiencies that you're battling against now Hmm. that's a that's a great question um you know the the first guy that ever gave me a chance was rick robbins and um i i love rick i mean he is a great guy he's a, a really talented guy he's done some some really some neat stuff and um you know that was just a a great introduction for me i worked for him for eight months um there in the summer of 2004 or and on into the kind of early 2005 and that was a really good introduction to um to, to office work and that actually came about i at that same time i applied for tom doak's internship and um, I didn't get it, and and I was really pretty upset about it. I, I really, really wanted it, um, but you know how things happen in hindsight. I mean, there would be no Sweetens Cove. I never would have met Tad. Um, so many different things that that have happened to me positively would not have happened had I gotten Tom's internship. So from the 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 work with Gary or with with Rick, I was. Um, Rick didn't have quite enough work to be able to keep me on full time. And, uh, there's a really nice guy there that knew one of the senior designers with player. And, um, 
they put me in, in touch with them and I went out and worked in the field there and, um, being thrown into the fire of a real live construction project, um, with the player group was being on site was just absolutely invaluable experience. And, you know, I really have a, have a lot of respect for, for the player guys. I mean, they, you know, they're operating in a, um, in an environment with the architect contractor model that, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in this interview complaining about, but, you know, as around the time that I was there and this doesn't have anything to do with me, it's just the way they were kind of reorganizing their business, but they were beginning to spend a lot more time focusing on site with design coordinators and people being, having a daily site presence to, to get more control. And um, so that was my role was as a design coordinator. And um, that, you know, that's a, if you're going to have a architect contractor model, you, it really helps for the architect to have that guy on site all the time. And um, that, that that's what I did. And, you know, even with that, and, and that's where I met Tad was down in Florida. And we realized that, you know, there, even with us being there, there was inefficiencies and things that were happening that, that, you know, if you just did it all under one um, umbrella, it could be better. So that's kind of, you know, those experiences were very valuable, but at the same time, you know, you're in a situation, you start to look around and you say, well, if it was designed, you could do X, Y, or Z better. And, and that's kind of, <clears throat> that kind of helped us, you know, inform our own thoughts and, and styles and, and belief system on, on how to do things. Do you feel but like at the people, same, but at the same time, a very, very valuable experience. Mm -hmm. I know so. you. Uh, just hearing you and talk in other interviews, you became close to a couple people that you worked with in player design. But do you do you feel like people who work as associates or project managers for the big firms do they do they share your frustration about the way things are operated or the the stifling of creativity on a design because there are just too many voices in or or even not enough uh, there just not enough authority given to any one person. Um, you know, I, I'd be hesitant to <clears throat> put words in, in, in their mouths, but, um, I mean, I think ultimately your dream in this profession is to have latitude and, and ability to do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, that, that's kind of a dream position to be in. And, um, you know, so I think, you know, if, if you're in a, if you're working for a bigger firm, there just naturally there's going to be more layers and, and things are going to get filtered out and you're going to have a little bit less, less latitude. So, I mean, I don't know this for a, a fact, but I mean, I, I think just as a, an architect and generally speaking, I mean, I think the, the mindset of an architect is someone who would pursue and enjoy freedom and, <laughs> like to have have their way basically and and um you know having your own business and having a design build business i mean that's really having your own way because you're you're controlling the construction too um so i, I like where i am you know a lot of these uh, and you see it close now that you're, you're like we've been talking about answering answering the phone and getting an opportunity to put your proposals and on desks do you feel that some of the competition, the big name firms, the the player named firms, 
will there be another generation of like say PGA Tour architects like the Nicholas and Palmer, Ernie Els? Will there be another generation of that coming through, or is is that model dying? Where you have the the big name and the big house, is it, is everything in your opinion going to? Do you think everything will kind of start to shift toward the design build and the more smaller firms? I don't. I don't. I tend just in the way I think about things to shy away from absolutes. So I, I don't think everything will, I, I, you know, Tiger Woods is going to continue to mm-hmm. Tiger's one b- build his firm. And, and by all accounts, he, he has, and I mean, I've, I've watched a lot of interviews with him and, and, you know, seen some of his early work. I mean, the guy obviously has a brilliant mind, um, a great mind for architecture. Blue Jack national has been <clears throat> really well received. Um, you know, I think he's going to have a, extremely successful career in architecture um so but it's the yeah, same especially time. I mean, if he kind of keeps it to one or two courses at a time yeah i mean is tiger going to go down a design build route or will he kind of have a more traditional route i mean i i don't know I, yeah I, I think um i think there will always be a place for the 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 traditional model of golf construction there's probably always going to be a place for the big name selling a project. Um, that's just going to be some clients are going to want that. I mean, ultimately the client's going to decide what their objectives are. And, and if they want, if they feel like they need and want that big name, then that's what they're going to do. Um, but the door is certainly far more open now than it was in 2008 for people like us. I mean, Tad and I, when we started King Collins in 2010, we just said, God, if we can just get one in the ground, just one project in the ground during the recession, we can come out of the recession, you know, showing people what, what we're capable of. And that'll, that'll lay the foundation. And that was, that was kind of the goal was just to get, get one project, just to show what you can do and, and use that as your, your calling card. And, you know, it's yeah. been a hell of a struggle, but, Thankfully, that's what's happened. Hopefully, you know, and, and un- hopefully, you know, we don't get back to the point or revert to the point where we're using golf to try to sell uh, housing development again. You know, that that model, you know, it's popped up here and there in the last five years, but it's really, you know, I think people are developers are still gun shy about that. But if it ever gets back to the way it was a little bit before where we're you know we're building out subdivisions and using golf as an anchor then that mm-hmm. there will be a desire probably to use a big household name to sell mm-hmm. the golf mm-hmm. as a product rather than what mm-hmm. you know you and your companions are doing which is like selling golf as a sport as a golf course as an mm-hmm. entertainment itself mm-hmm. yeah that's right when you sit and look across the field of contemporary designers and the most exceptional work that's been done in the last, like maybe say 20 years, what do you admire more? Do you admire the ideas and talent that you see, or do you admire the opportunities that they've been given? Um, that's a, a little bit of both. I think those two go hand in hand. Um, you know, I, your question kind of reminds me of, I was on golf club Atlas. It was, a. this was a long time ago, maybe like a year, year and a half ago. And I kind of got bent out of shape. Um, somebody had made a comment about, uh, sand Valley and, and 
being sort of dismissive of it. And I thought, and it really bothered me because I felt like they were, they were trying to, they weren't understanding how much talent Cor Crenshaw had on that project. I mean, you know, you had Dave Axland and um, I think Jim Craig or you know, Jimbo was there. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you had obviously Bill Corr and, um, you know, all these guys who just done this all this amazing work. And um, this one comment was sort of dismissive of, of, of that. And um, I just, I kind of chimed in and, you know, stood up for him a, l- a little bit and said, you know, something to the effect of, uh, you know, I don't think, you know, you understand exactly how much talent it takes and how much effort it takes to do, to do what they did. And if, and if you understood that, um, you know, you probably wouldn't be speaking in the, in the terms that you are. So, um, to your point, I mean, I think the, amount of talent has led to some remarkable opportunities without the talent you wouldn't be you know getting these great opportunities on these on these great sites and um you know there there's a handful of firms that that have you know this hyper focused you know attention to detail and everything that's that's led to some magnificent creations on some some great sites mm-hmm. so I'm always curious to know if architects like yourself look across and, at, at your competition, or in, many of them are, would be your friends. And do you see, and if you see a, a wide disparity in the level of, of talent, or is talent really, is, is that an overrated concept in architecture? It's more about are you able to execute? Do you have a, the appropriate budget? Do you have the right site? But, you know, what, what, where do you, how do you view talent in your business? Well, um, you you have to have talent in order to deliver, but part of, you know, having talent is, is actually being able to, to deliver the product. And I think that's where Tad and I make such a great team. I mean, he has a, a tremendous amount of construction experience and practical know-how. Um, and of course I have construction experience too, but he has a lot more than me. And, um, and, the way he and I mesh together, you know, really perfectly molds King Collins, uh, in, into what we are. Um, and I think that, I mean, there are, there are a lot of guys out there that are really, really, really talented that if given the right opportunity could, you know, could hit a, a massive home run. I mean, I remember in, around 2008, 2009, when I was desperate to get back into architecture, um, there was this website called Punchbowl Golf, I think is what it was called. And it was um, started by, uh, his name's Colin, uh, shoot, I'm drawing a blank on his last name. He, I think he's involved with the Outpost Club and Yale's golf team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, did, a, I think, work for Tom Doak and did a lot of really great stuff and obviously a really smart, really talented guy. And, um, you know, I used to look at his website and, you know, at that time they were still, you know, he and his partner were really busy and doing stuff. And it got to the point where it was hard for me to even, even look at it because it was like, 
I wanted to be doing what they were doing so much. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of guys out there who were like, you know, the way I felt in, in 2008, 2009, who believed in themselves and believed that they were, you know, capable of doing something if given the right opportunity. And Gary player has a great saying that, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And I think that <laughs> there's a lot of truth in that. And I think that that's part of what, you know, happened at Sweetens Cove. I mean, I've killed myself to get this thing off the ground. Um, but at the same time, um, I did get a lucky break. I was in the right place at the right time. And there's a lot of people out there that just need that chance that, that have plenty, that have, the talent to do it, you know, it, it's, um, it just always takes the, the, longer the, than you, than you want it, it takes, to. <laughs> it takes longer than you think, but the, the talent has to, the stars kind of have to align. The talent's only going to go so far. I mean, it, you have to match that up with, uh, you know, a good client and, you know, the stars have to align to, for the thing to be able to get done and get open. And I mean, I think I remember hearing that, um, you know, three or I think Cork Crenshaw did three or four projects where something out of their control happened with the client before they ever got one golf course open. And so they had three false starts that right. wasn't their fault, but the, you know, the project ran out of money or something like that. I mean, did Cork Crenshaw have enough talent to get a good golf course in the ground? <laughs> I mean, of course, but you know, let's just say you know, that had happened to me, let's say Sweetens COVID never got opened. You know, what would I be doing right now? You know, Sweetens Cove came real damn close to never getting open. Yeah. Yeah. Real close. And, um, so there, there's, there's a lot of, you know, talent can only take you so far. I mean, there's, there's other factors that, that are out of, out of your control a lot of times. And I mean, I was lucky to be able to have Sweetens Cove fall in my lap from an operational standpoint and lucky to be able to get it open and lucky to be able to keep it open. Um, you know, that's something I'll always be very thankful for because without that, I wouldn't be standing here at this drafting table. I wouldn't be talking to you. Yeah. And there's, you, you, got, mean, you got, you got to get some lucky breaks in there. You know, some things have to go your way too. Yeah. And I think it would be more frustrating and maybe in a different era, if you were doing what you're doing and a lot of golf courses around you are actually being built. There's so few, there's so few mm -hmm. opportunities now, but if you were in a different time period and you had the talent that you have, you would look around and see golf courses opening left and right that were, as we said earlier, you know, just terrible, boring golf courses. And you'd be wondering mm -hmm. why, why yeah. is this happening? Well, I, the, the guy that I mentioned, I was talking to, um, this weekend out at, out at Sweetens Cove, uh, golf club Atlas, um, guy, his name is Bill Schultz. I mean, great guy. been, all over the place. And, um, Bill made a comment to me that I thought was really interesting. He said, you know, in his profession, I think he's a, a broker of some sort. Um, he said, you know, if I was a top 10 broker in the world, um, you know, I, I would be, have a mansion in the Hamptons, you know? Um, but if I'm a top 10 golf course architect in the world, there's a really good chance that I am, having a hard time paying my mortgage or don't know, <laughs> yeah. you know, don't know where the next paycheck's coming from. And, you know, that, that I think that, um, 
there is just such a fine line in this in this profession between you know kind of just barely getting by and being uber successful i mean you kind of just need the right things to to fall on your lap and it's it's hard. I mean, it's yeah. not easy. It's and that's not for why the this, faint of heart. It's not, it's not for the faint of heart. That's for sure. For sure. Yeah. And that's why this next one for you, that uh, the nine hole in New York is going to be just so exciting to get that, to get another peg in the board and, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to start to climb up and now you have two golf courses and then it's three. And it, I mean, it, mm-hmm. it could, it, it, that's the way it happens, I guess, you know, it just starts to it build momentum. Yeah. 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 I mean, you just got to get, enough people have to see it and then somebody says hey what if, you know what if you hire these guys and, and then the next thing you know you yeah. get 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 a really high profile one i mean we've had a we've had a few cracks at some some really high profile stuff that just hadn't quite come through but you know i think that's going to happen in, in time assuming there, uh, there's larger factors out of our control that don't don't prevent that from happening yeah well i mean hopefully things get rolling i bet you i bet you're like it's an exciting time for you it must be you know you're ready to have an opportunity potentially in a couple projects to open up the briefcase and let your design ideas fly you seem to me like i i think about you sort of like as the film auteur you know somebody who is the writer the director and you put forth a product and it's exactly the way you want it you're passionate about it you've been you know thought a long time about it and if it doesn't you know if some some jackass with a podcast calls you up and says he's got a problem with a few grades you're like i don't care it's you know this is what i do <laughs> oh that's hilarious it's a very artistic no. uh, frame of reference i think you have well no i well i think that's funny i mean i i um you know, I, th- I think you're probably right. I mean, I, I um, in a lot of these interviews or whatever, I've, I've always mentioned Mike Strantz, and I yeah. mean, this is a chance to mention him. <clears throat> I wish I had had a chance to meet him. I mean, I just have so much admiration for him. I mean, what what he did at Tobacco Road is so astonishing. I mean, he went out and he's <laughs> it was like he did not give a shit who he offended or what he did. You know, he did, it's just, it's obvious that he was so far out there and going to do his own thing, but that he had so much self-confidence that he knew that what he was doing was right and was good and was, was grounded in, in a lot of the time tested fundamentals of, of architecture that he could get away with it. And you know, some of the stuff out there is so outlandish that it's going to be off-putting to a lot of people simply because they've never seen anything like it. So that that takes serious guts to to be able to do that, and um, and I just I just love the mindset that he had that he was that self-confident and believed in himself that much that he could not only do that but pull it off. It, and have it just be a, this massive success. I've gotten to know um, the owners of Tobacco Road a little bit and the great guys. And, you know, they've told me that, um, you know, hiring Mike Strantz was, is the reason that they're still there today. You know, Mike wasn't that big of a name. I mean, yeah, he won the, you know, Golf Week Architect of the Year a couple of times and made quite a name for himself. But, I mean, he wasn't near as big as, uh, you know, Afazio or Nicholas or Reese Jones. And, you know, I think that 
had had they gone in a different direction and not hired this amazingly brilliant guy who gave them this insanely unique and interesting golf course there probably wouldn't be a tobacco road sitting there today because it would be just like everything else that's out there and instead it's this amazingly successful uh you know standalone public course in the pinehurst area that's just has had a had a great run and continues to have a great run because it's because of mike yeah it's actually part of the appeal about tobacco road is that it is a polarizing golf course it's mm-hmm. guaranteed it's guaranteed to always be in the conversation and you can't go anywhere without ta- asking somebody their opinion about it do you like it or do you not like it and you know yeah. it's, it's always going to be relevant because of that i'm assuming you like it i love it i love i love tobacco road yeah so do i um, i i think it's brilliant i i you know it is it is polarizing um you know i think that that mike strance really tapped into the the mckenzie mindset um you know where mckenzie believed that the the best golf courses were ones that were were off-putting and offensive on on first view and and took took time to to digest and and to accept as you know, being, being great experiences and, you know, McKenzie held up the old course as the ultimate example of that. Um, you know, McKenzie was pissed off when everyone was raving about Cypress point from the get go. You know, he was worried he had messed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying for popularity. Damn it. Well, you know, I think he, you know, he wanted it to be a great golf course, but he was afraid that it was, you know, he had he, he was afraid he had messed up the architecture because it it wasn't controversial, um, and, and I think he, he attributed that to the, just the amazing scenery was, you know, overwhelming to people, and perhaps that was the reason that it that it didn't. You know, he wanted he wanted to have that controversy. And I think Strance, um, if I had to guess, you know, understood that and understood that. You know that controversy is is important. I mean, Pete Dye, golly, what a great example of that! It, you know, I mean, he got raked over the coals so many times, but his his ideas and concepts have, have stood up and takes a somebody with a pretty big backbone and yeah, you know, I mean, ability to kind of to to shut it out a little bit. Yeah, to know? truly have the confidence that you know what you're doing and be able to just kind of not even pay attention to the critics yeah yeah i mean i think you seem to have that well i not that not that you have critics i'm not you know no no i i mean i i i um that it it was a conscious decision right to it was a conscious decision to push the envelope to which meant that we were opening ourselves up to, to criticism um uh, you know, in in you know having the conversations, and, and having the conversation that you and I had, I think is is great. I mean, I think it's it's valuable. I mean, I I, I hope that uh, you know you'll come back, and and hopefully it will be a different and and better experience for you next time. Um, but if it's not, it, it's not. I mean, <laughs> you know. Um, so be it, I guess. But, um, you know, I, 
yeah, I, but you, well, I definitely, you need, I definitely you need like the, to think you need the you perplexed customer yeah. so you know that you that all your efforts to kind of like push it and make it make interesting worked because if you yeah you know like you said earlier you know you thought it would get like a, a slightly different reaction but the reaction was so enthusiastic you know maybe you're like McKinsey at yeah. Cypress Point like wait a minute <laughs> you're not yeah, supposed well, to be loving it this yeah, much yeah, right away it's it is it's been more enthusiastic than I expected from. Um, you know, I knew that um, the, you know, the hardcore golf aficionados would, would absolutely just gobble it up. Um, and I felt like over time, you're, I guess what, what Mike Kaiser would call them a retail golfer. You know, over time, those the, the retail golfer would um, would come to love it. And they might not be able to explain why they loved it, but they might come to love it. But it might be kind of a a little bit more of a love hate relationship than it's been. <laughs> but, um, you know, we've had a lot more you know, positive feedback from people who've, you know, people who haven't seen anything. Um, for, I, I, that's just, I don't know. Well, one people, of the, one of the things is it, people it, love it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, t- it's a type of golf that you, uh, very rarely encounter those shots mm-hmm. and and that kind mm-hmm. of level of creativity. So if, if somebody, I can see how if somebody's been playing this a uh, standard you know mid twentieth century golf course their whole life and they go to Sweetens Cove, that could really flick on the you know turn the light bulb on for them. Yeah, I think the key is just thinking about it that you know the fun factor never really stops and you know just generally speaking, just kind of middle of the board kind of stuff. I think that it is a course that, you know, isn't going to wear you out too bad. I mean, I know, I know that there were some instances where, where it was, was wearing you out a little bit, but over the course of a hundred public rounds, you know, I think that most people are finding it to be, um, playable and accessible and, um, and it's not not killing them too much. And part of that, I, I will I will admit, is generally speaking for our just you know run of the mill daily fee play, we don't usually put the pin in tough spots. I mean, we might have one or two tough pins, but it sounds like you know you saw some real real tough ones um, the day you played. Um, <laughs> you know, in in that. I, we have consciously tried not to overwhelm people. Like we'll 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 only generally give them you know one or two tough ones on nine holes, so so as not to wear people out. And if you know people, I think have a pretty high tolerance for all the crazy stuff going out on out there, as long as they they feel like they're not getting worn out too much. And if every pin was you know, left on number two, left on number three, left on number eight, you know, on the little plateau on number nine. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. that would get a little bit too much for your average guy. Yeah. So uh, going back to Tobacco Road, just to kind of fa- finish up here, uh, you mentioned you're a fan of that golf course. Here's something I ask most of the people that come on the podcast is, aside, so let's put Tobacco Road aside. I don't know if this would have been your answer anyway, but we'll put that aside. What is your, what's the best modern golf course that you've seen? A place that just, you know, tickles you for whatever reason and some place that you would love to play over and over and over again. Sand Hills. 
it's just amazing. It's it's perfect. Um, I, I think it's uh, a just perfectly natural. Um, one great hole after another. Never plays the same. It's just a perfect golf course. And um, I've been fortunate to go out there two times, and each time um, we just play and play and play and play. I mean, I'm actually somewhat embarrassed to say I've never actually walked the golf course. Um, I've always ridden a cart, and the, the reason we ride a cart out there is so we can try to play in excess of 65, 70 holes a day. Yeah, it's you a- know, we, we play from 7 a.m. until it is – you can't – you know, as late as they'll let us play. Uh, that's one thing that I think it's overlooked about Sand Hills in particular, but a lot of those courses in that region of the country, that style of course, it's it's exhausting. It's a it's a tough round of physical golf there, with the wind and the hills and the, the <laughs> sand gets in your shoes, and you yeah. know it's like it's it's challenging. So I, I yeah. understand that. Um, it's just a it's just a great place, and I mean, I I would love to walk it. I, I like walking golf courses. Um, but, you know, you're only kind of out there for two or three days. And, you know, I'm only, if I, you know, I'm lucky out there every two or three years. And it's like, if I decide to walk, that means like I'm going to get like, you know, I'm going to play like nine or 18 less holes today. So it's kind of, you just want to go out there and just play as much as possible is kind of how we look at it and just, just do loops. Yeah, so, no doubt. No doubt. It's a fun place. What's the most overrated template hole? Man, that's a great question. Most overrated template hole. Huh. Uh, maybe the Cape. Mm-hmm. Why would you say yeah. that? Um, I, you know, sometimes it's it's not always set up on a on a great angle um, to where you're really rewarded. Um, I think if it's on a if it's on a good angle, it can it can provide the right um, you know risk reward dynamic. Like at Sweetens Cove, our Cape. Um, if I had to pick a least favorite hole at Sweetens, I would say the six. I mean, I really yeah. like the six hole, but and I think it's a, actually a really important hole for that golf course because it, we need a long par four out there. We need a long, really tough par four. Um, I, I'm a big advocate of the ebb and flow of a routing and think that that's, you need a tough hole mixed in with the, you know, between, you know, five's a 283 yard hole and seven's a 310 yard hole. Six needs to be there and six needs to be tough. Um, so I like that hole, but if you play it from like the blue tees, it's not, it's not as strategic as, is, is a lot of the other holes out there. If you play it from the black tees, which is the, the tees farther to the left, um, it is a more strategic hole. Um, so, you know, kind of, you know, maybe, maybe that's a, just thinking through it. Maybe that's a little bit of a design flaw there. Maybe we should have had the some of the four tees a little bit farther left, but we're, you know, looking at playability. But, you know, it's just a hole that, you know, may not be the most, the strategy doesn't always work out there. The shot making interest isn't always quite as interesting as some of the other template holes. I would say. Do you get feedback that people are, are you know, because you mentioned like a lot of the people who like the course are, you know, golf course nerds. I, well, I consider myself one pretty hardcore. But you know, the fact that there's water at all 
on a golf hole is sort of like anathema to the whole Sweetens experience. Do you get that uh-huh. feedback? Not really. Um, you know, we intentionally kept the, the the only water hazard that truly comes into play is the is the cape hole, the six. Um, it doesn't really come into play on two, and I think that you know there's enough examples of great cape holes and and classic architecture that do ha- have water involved where it's um, it's fine. And I mean that was you know, kind of the inspiration. I mean, we wanted to do a, a cape hole that had a little bit of a different dynamic at the green than, than some of, some of the other ones. And, um, just for the sake of doing something different and being a little bit unique, but I, I, I've not really received that feedback. Yeah. You went to so. Mississippi state, didn't you? I did. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah okay. For graduate school. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So yeah. I, I'm not from the Southeast. I moved here about 15, 16 years ago, okay. uh, but I'm, I'm surrounded by, uh, SEC people, you know, right. Being here, it's kind uh-huh. of a, a confluence of different uh, team affinities and alumni bases. What you, you know, this culture very well. So <laughs> what, what SEC team do you dislike the least? Because uh, I, well, I, I was curious the, the the way you know teams and, and student alumni is you know <laughs> what the rivalries rivalries are and and where they come from and what what impassions them so much. So so who's the least offensive rival? That's really funny. Well, so I grew up uh, obviously in, in in Tennessee, and as a result of that, I mean I, I kind of became a Tennessee fan through osmosis. I mean, they're kind of like the, the pro football team basically. Um, so aside from, from Tennessee, who, who is the kind of least offensive of, yeah. of everyone? Um, you know, I, LSU, I, I guess, uh, you know, my, my sister-in-law is a, a huge LSU fan and, and I, and, um, you know, I sort of see the LSU as being just a, bunch of really fun loving kind of crazy people <laughs> who go you know, tigers just, just go you know go nuts for their team and i don't i don't find them to be terribly offensive i have um i have some friends who are big alabama fans and um i marvel at, at their their success and um you know i like to to tease them a little bit about some of just the over top over the top obnoxiousness of the Alabama fans. I was actually at a parade um, in Savannah, Georgia, with my LSU Tiger sister-in-law and her family um, for um, for St. Patrick's Day this year, and Ugo was there, the Georgia mascot, and and Ugga's going right in front of us, and I took a picture of Ugga in. In the background, I realized that there was a Alabama fan standing in the background with a gigantic blanket that they had, <laughs> and they were holding it up that had like, you know, sixteen national championships or whatever, how many ever they claim. Yeah. And I just thought that was perfect. It's like here's Uga. <laughs> yeah. Everyone in Savannah loves Georgia, and there's an Alabama fan with a blanket that says you know sixteen on it or what, however many ever national championships. Talk <laughs> like, about just, scoreboard. That's so perfect. I just I love that. I just thought that was hilarious. Like yeah. they're 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 everywhere, you know. And they've they've always got the 
the accompaniments to go along with it. Well, so, they, it's they, pretty you know, funny. It's good times for that program. Yeah, it sure is. I thought for sure you were yeah. going to say Vanderbilt. I thought that was just the default. You know, how can oh well, yeah, how can anybody true. have anything? Yeah, how can anybody hate? How can anybody hate? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was almost going to say Mississippi State because they're kind of they're kind of in that same same <laughs> well, same same boat. But, yeah. Uh, hey, well, funny. Rob, I appreciate talking you talking to me and not thanks for not getting angry thanks for not getting bent no, out of shape I, not, not to, <laughs> having not a civil conversation I pre- no, I, no i appreciate the feedback and i again i in some sort of strange way of and am pleased to hear it i mean i certainly want people to enjoy it and have a have a great time out there that's the most important thing but um it is in kind of a weird way kind of a affirmation of some of the stuff we did but hopefully you'll come back out and have a have a a little bit different experience next time. I'll, I'll come back if, if you agree to play with me. How about that? I will definitely do that. I would love that. That would be a lot of fun. I would too. I would too. Well, thanks again, Rob. It was great, great catching up and good you. talking Thank to you. Thank you so and, much for having me on. Nice yeah, to talk to you. That was good. Okay. Thanks, bud. Thanks. See ya. So I, I realize I called the course Sweeten Coves a few times. Uh, I know the name is Sweeten's Cove. I just got tongue-tied, so don't write in about that. Rob seems like a great guy, and I think that's a big part of the reason so many people who come through Sweeten's Cove love it, and they come back, and then they leave, and they spread the gospel. He and Patrick Boyd, who works there most days, help give the place a real homey and laid-back vibe. And it makes you feel like when you go there that you're one of the few people who knows about this hip underground club. So that's a testament to their personalities and hospitality. Uh, This was a, a bit of a different podcast. Even though we had a good talk and got well beyond Sweden's Cove, I really have no desire in general or intention to use this forum as a critique of a specific golf course. But here's how it happened. I initially reached out to Rob a couple of months ago to invite him on, and I had planned to drive the two and a half hours to Sweden's Cove, play it, and then sit down and record the pod with him as we both basked in the glory of one of America's great golf treasures. Uh, So I completely expected to go there and have my mind blown based on everything I'd seen and read and imagined. Uh, It turned out Rob couldn't be there the day that I came, which was fortunate because instead of finding bliss, I walked off the golf course stunned because I was so unmoved. So I actually wasn't going to have him come on at all. I wanted to just let it go. I didn't want to talk about the golf course, uh, especially with him, because I thought I'd either have to be dishonest about it or it might put him in an awkward position and why would he volunteer for that? But when I finally messaged him about my reaction to the course, he had no reservations about talking it over. That's one of the really cool things about Rob. It it just doesn't phase him. He's completely confident and comfortable in Sweden's Cove and in his art and in his vision, as all great artists should be. I think my one regret with the conversation is that some listeners will come away from it thinking I react to Sweden's Cove the way I do because of outcomes of particular shots or holes or because I'm a rube or because I just don't get it. But we talked about some of those situations as a gateway to illustrate why I believe the course is overshaped in places and how the design tries to do too much, and also as a way to try to get to the topic of excess in architecture. You know, it's easy to say to someone who isn't totally seduced by whatever it is you've got that, well, you just don't understand it. I understand it. I just wasn't buying it. Remember, this is a completely fabricated course from a designer who proudly asserts that he was trying to build something that could be severe and exaggerated. So it should not be blasphemous that there are elements there that might not work. And this is all only worth belaboring, and I know I'm belaboring, because Sweeten's Cove is such a phenomenon, and at least one group of panelists insists there are only 49 better golf courses that have been built in the last 58 years. 
I think there's often a desire to believe in the fairy tale, and you can get to a point where you're overly invested in its outcome. But for me, there's a believability issue, and the course, as good as it really is, doesn't quite get past that. I know I could go back 5, 10, or 20 more times, and I'm actually, I am actually eager to get back, believe it or not. And I know I'll have different experiences and see different outcomes and uh, get to know more of its intricacies. But in my own experience in golf, first impressions are usually the right impressions. And now, you may cue all the references to the old course. Sweden's Cove is a perfect place for many people, and that's great. It's important. It's a really special, fun, creative, one-of-a-kind course in a charming setting, and it gives public players, for a fraction of the cost, the kind of aura and experience they otherwise would only expect at price and distance prohibitive places like Bandon Dunes. So, okay, enough about this finally. Uh, Rob Collins and Tad King are real talents, and there needs to be a place for them and their vision in modern architecture. They're on to a really interesting progressive design wavelength, and it'll, it, and it'll be exciting to see what they can do with better sites and a little more breathing room. So thank you to Rob Collins for joining me and having this discussion. Thank you all for your support and for listening, at least those of you who've made it this far. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at FeedTheBall. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. Uh, please leave feedback and star ratings if you feel so inclined. Those are important. I appreciate those. You can also leave comments on FeedTheBall.com. Once again, thanks to Rob Collins. Thanks to you all. Look forward to the next episode. Thanks to the Sundogs. And until next time, everybody take care. I can spend the night with